we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Well, you, one thing you've learned through a lot of the COVID stuff is the gain of function that became a, really a household uh, you know, na name that everybody kind of gathered onto and understood. And so I want to start right here, uh, friends, and read you this excerpt from Forbes. Uh, and uh, it's kind of eye-opening here. And this is a, a new lab-made COVID-19 coronavirus at Boston University raises questions. <laughs> you think, huh? This was one of those should have seen it come in moments. Uh, on October 14th, a team of researchers described how they have created a new hybrid version of the COVID-19 coronavirus in their lab at Boston University and use this lab-created virus to infect mice, which ended up killing 80% of the mice. These days, if you think that posting something that talks about a lab-created virus killing mice wouldn't create a commotion, then in the worlds of the heavy metal band uh, Judas Priest, you've got another thing coming. Wow, that's the opening bell of that one. And it goes on a bit more, which I'll reach you in a moment here. Welcome into America Out Loud Pulse here. It is Malcolm Out Loud, along with my co-host. Dr. Peter McCullough. All right, so then it goes on to say, yep, it wasn't too long before gain-of-function claims about this research began on social media with gain-of-function in the case, meaning GOF gain-of-function, rather than go on friend, okay? For example, Senator Roger Marshall uh, uh, said, this research must stop immediately. It is unconscionable that uh, NIH sponsors NIH sponsors this legal gain-of-function virus research through Boston University on the uh, EcoHealth uh, Health Alliance in densely populated areas. Creating, listen to this. Creating potential to kill more people than any singular nuclear weapon. Now, that got my attention, Dr. McCullough, right there. So the potential to kill more people than any singular nuclear weapon. And yet this is what they do. It's if we don't have enough troubles and challenges in our way, let's start screwing around with uh, nature and do this again in the labs. What do you make of this story? Boy, I tell you, well, let me uh, put in some more context here. So this is done at the Boston University National Emerging Infectious Diseases Laboratory. This is a biosecurity level three lab. So it doesn't have the same security measures as the Wuhan lab in Wuhan, China. Wow. So it's less secure, Malcolm. It's funded by the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. This is directed by Dr. Anthony Fauci. This is contemporary work. The first author is Dr. Chen, and the senior author is Dr. Mohsen Saeed. They state that this was all approved by the Boston University uh, Biosafety Committee. In fact, Boston University came out and said that, listen, our Biosafety Committee uh, uh, approved this. In the paper, the goals are clearly to make a more infectious and lethal virus. So they take the spike protein for Omicron, which is uh, far more infectious and far more transmissible. And Omicron is able to replicate at 70 times the speed of Delta. 
And then they create a, a chimeric with the uh, original Wuhan strain, which is far more deadly. It had a lot more um, ability to invade <laughs> the body. And then they test it out, first of all, in fully uh, immortal human cells, and it just destroys the human cells uh, in cell culture. So they move on to animals where they have a humanized respiratory epithelial tract, and they give it to animals, and it's striking the weight loss that they had, and then death, it killed them. Hmm. And uh, they call this the Omni-S strain. There's no attempts in here for a monoclonal antibody or a vaccine like the original Barrick papers. It's clear the intent of these papers is to create a weapon. And now everyone is outraged because it's in a relatively insecure lab in Boston. And can you imagine if this got out? Oh, the other finding, Malcolm, is that prior immunity to any COVID from any of the other strains they tested various antibodies was useless. So this would just take out anybody who had any status vaccinated or COVID recovered. This could be a brand new fatal illness. What a disaster evolving right in front of us. And who is in the uh, at the helm of this, the, the guilty party, the National Institutes of Health, National uh, Institute for Allergy and Immunology, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yeah, we may want to change the name of that group to the National Institutes of Death. Uh, might be a more appropriate name rather than health. All right. So what's the truth on this? Was this truly gain-of-function research where an even more deadly, severe, acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, was created? Or was this perhaps loss-of-function research that was indeed of public benefit that could lead to better therapeutic interventions? Or was there something in between? What do we hope to gain from this is my question, Dr. What What do you glean from this? Well, I appeared on a panel on Newsmax with Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Kelly Victory. And it was interesting because Corey started off by saying, well, technically this is not gain of function. Victory says, this is clearly gain of function. And here I was in the middle. You know, gain of function means you take a protein or a gene and one actually improves the function of it. This is actually taking part one virus and putting it on another virus, viral strains within the same family, and ending up with a super virus. Um, I tend to just classify this as gain of function, meaning you're making it uh, more active, more deadly. Uh, I don't know what we need a new word for this. I mean, this is basically just a diabolical creation. Right. That's a good way to put it, diabolical creation. I, I've seen the argument you just spoke about with the gain of function. There are some, uh, I've read several papers on this, and they some are saying that, oh, maybe it's not. And like you say, well, what else would it be when you're messing with things you probably shouldn't be even messing with? So they're suggesting here and they're asking, is it to create better therapeutic interventions? But you're saying that wasn't even part of this, I think is what you said in the opening remarks, wasn't it? That's right. There's no mention of therapeutics. I mean, I read the paper, you know, when I go on TV, I want the listeners to know, I mean, I read the paper and it's loaded with technical uh, language. But, but, you know, the paper was almost proudly announcing that they had made a more lethal strain of the virus. There was no mention of, well, this is going to give us new insights on how to save the world. This was like, wow, here we go. This is a, this is a new and improved weapon. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to tell you something here. This is my my greatest fear is is exactly what I'm going to say here. You know, a lot of evil people, a lot of bad people, they they see these kinds of things. They we put I, what I'm afraid of is we put these ideas into their minds. There are people on the planet who would love nothing better than to kill millions of people. And I say this as a as a student of the political game and of the news cycle. I mean, I know what's going on here. And this is my greatest fear, uh, McCullough, is that, um, you know, the wrong people hear this and then they get in and they start to experiment with things. Because it's just like they said on the Forbes up front, this is greater than any other weapon you could develop. You wouldn't need to create a nuclear weapon. You wouldn't need to create any bombs or anything else. You just create one of these sort of viruses that get into uh, the wild here, and the death count is staggering. Isn't that, I mean, I, I, I get a sense, I don't know about you, but we're looking into the future here, and I don't get a good feeling of this. I don't, and to, just the notion that this biological weapon is sitting at a relatively insecure lab right. in Boston University uh, what could knows? go wrong, right? What could go wrong? Huh. Someone breaking in now, uh, somebody trying to influence one of the laboratory workers, what type of crazy person is going to, you know, you can quickly go on the website and see, the, see who the collaborators are at this institute. Are they going to be targeted? Are they going to be influenced by those who have evil intent for the world? I mean, I think right now we ought to have U.S. agencies go in, secure these assets and really get them locked down. This sounds terrible. Right. And this is the kind of thing that's happening in a lot of labs. You can multiply this now in areas that we're not even familiar with. In fact, we covered a lot of those stories out in Ukraine. There were a ton of these labs, and many of them were involved with the NIH and our facilities here in the U.S. We have our hands in a lot of things here. And uh, the question is, what's the outcome? You know, how, how does this end? And uh, th this is a huge story. This is this is this is massive in size and scope and it just makes me so concerned for humanity and for the future and what's going to happen because sadly people, there are a lot of bad cats and this is, it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, we don't think that way you and I and others, but surely a lot of people do. So, you know, I, I think we've got to have an uprising. People have got to speak up loud, Peter. They've got to speak up real loud and we've got to get the NIH who is funded by, by, you know, tax money, I mean, and say that we're funding all this crap and say, no, that's not enough. You, you, you got to stop this stuff because we're not setting a good example, are we? We are not. And, you know, looking at the authors of this paper, it's not just Boston University. There's collaborators around the United States. Multiple universities are involved in even uh, an institute in Germany. These are almost all international collaboration because it takes him on a brain power to pull this off. But we need a complete review a strict moratorium on these types of activities. We can't trust a local university biosafety committee, which could be rubber stamping these projects. So don't forget, they're heavily funded by the US government. When an NIH grant comes in, Malcolm, it's not just the funding for the project, but they give very, very generous indirect uh, fees, which is on top of the grant to the institution. Sometimes the indirects are more than half the total amount. So whatever the grant award is, that amount again is given to the university just as a gift. So that so these insti institutions, these universities are so heavily incentivized mm. to accept NIH money and make it work. 
I think what they're doing is they're rubber stamping dangerous product. Project. They are indeed. They are indeed. And this is irresponsible at, at its best, uh, very irresponsible. And, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing that goes through my mind immediately, friends out there, is that, uh, you know, this is a government who is now in excess of $31 trillion in debt, uh, who just can't even really pay for lunch because they don't have the money. They, they have to borrow it constantly and make it up and steal it from the American people. So anyways, uh, that's just my uh uh, my, my two cents, it, it angers me to see this kind of behavior happen. And, and to think of the science part of this, it's utterly ridiculous. Well, uh, there you go. There's your opening story. Uh, I don't know what you were thinking, friends, but you, you, people need to get loud about this. So this is not going to go away now. And I've kind of got a fire burning in, in my belly about this one. Uh, this, this, is, this is sicker than sick that our government is doing this. As you say, uh, Dr. McCullough, should be a, a, a moratorium on this sort of thing. It should be out of question. You should not be playing with anything close to GOF at this point. I mean, doctors, have, I mean, the medical community has their hands full. The last thing they need is another virus circulating the planet, uh, for God's sake. So anyways, uh, listen, this is Q&A 42 uh, and counting and um, 42. And here we're talking about GOF again. Wow. All right, this, uh, let's get on with all of the questions. Got a lot of interesting ones here. This one is from Kathy. Uh, she says, I am a part of the silent epidemic of long COVID. I counted over 40 plus long COVID support groups on Facebook, including three that I am a member of. The amount of suffering is unbelievable and ignored. And, and she's right. Kathy's right. We've had major efforts by some doctors regarding early treatment. Other than FLCCC and some integrative docs who are following their own protocols, what is being done about this silent epidemic, she's, she's asking. There are different studies, but we need a, a substandardized treatment to help us get our lives back now. Please help. Interesting. Got me thinking, Dr. McCullough, when we talk about protocols, you think about, you know, this is kind of the new pandemic happening, which is going to be long COVID and vaccine injuries. And I, I've said that repeatedly, and I think that's where we're headed now. What, what do you gain of Kathy's comments there about the suffering and the groups and the help and the protocol? The entire new spectrum of long COVID as a syndrome needs a comprehensive research program and the government is the primary funder here until pharmaceutical companies can see, see a market they're not going to develop products for this so i think it's really uh, reliant on the national institutes of health instead of spending money uh, on creating uh, more weapons uh, uh, they should be having a giant program to help you know the tens of millions hundreds of millions of people worldwide suffering with this problem we have an active uh, trials program, all capital letters for acute COVID, we need a recovery program, a basically a portfolio of projects that start out with screening and detection, working into epidemiology, diagnosis, prognosis, and management. Each person's different. Every doctor now is struggling in this. We literally are grasping at straws, trying different types of therapeutics or supplements with no evidence, Malcolm, really with no evidence. So what I do with this syndrome is I try to divide it up into serious things that I have to know about, you know, blood clots uh, in the body, in the brain somewhere, heart damage, myocarditis, uh, blood system damage, uh, various types of bone marrow problems, immune system problems. So I'm reliant on laboratories and imaging to deal with the serious things. 
I think what she's talking about is this general fatigue, uh, what's called small fiber neuropathy, sleep disturbance, generally fairly miserable, weight loss, hair falling out. I bet I'm resonating with a lot of the listeners now. We do need help. Uh, I think naturopathic doctors are, are taking the lead far ahead of allopathic doctors. FLCC has a protocol and so does the World Council for Health. Those are two places to look. But I think everybody should be writing their, uh, their congressmen. Remember, the U.S. Congress uh, oversees um, and the Senate oversee the National Institutes of Health. They should be writing letters to the representatives to get long COVID or post-COVID syndromes funded. Yeah, well, well, that's perfectly said. You took the words right out of my mouth when you said the NIH should be funding these kinds of programs that Kathy suggests we need our listener here rather than uh, these uh, deadly sort of experiments in the lab and plain Frankenstein sort of activities. Uh, that is perfectly said. You know, I could not, I didn't even realize that question was what it was because we have so many here, but it wasn't that so appropriate, friends, to put that right up front here. Uh, and Dr. McCullough, of course, picked up on it immediately. Isn't that the truth, though? Isn't that where we should be putting the efforts? You know, as a programmer, notice, well, if you've been following along or not, every Friday, I've been doing a really interesting program with Dr. Henry Ely. You, you mentioned Dr. McCullough, uh, naturopathic doctor. Dr. H is right at the forefront of this and really truly has a heart to want to help people. Uh, we're doing that every Fridays uh, and um, taking back control of your life is what it's called. It has been so wildly successful and the outpouring of love and support there have been uh, through the moon. And so throughout the months of September and October, and it's all on podcast. So it's a fabulous body of work. If you go to the uh, menu nav bar at America Out Loud, go into shows, go down to taking back control of your life. Now, it plays on my voice of a nation, but that's the series we're calling it. But you can find it under shows as well, taking back control of your life. Go there. And there's a wealth of information in there. Dr. H, uh, again, naturopathic doctor and brilliant mind, is engaged with. And you can drop in every Friday, uh, 6 and 11, on The Voice of a Nation and listen to that show. But we are taking the lead, and uh, Dr. McCullough, and I, I, I recognize this is a real problem. My heart goes out to folks that are suffering with both long COVID and vaccine injuries are tremendous. Um there's also, and you've probably seen this, Dr. McCullough, there's also an interesting article on AmericaOutloud.com from uh, Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Bregan, which was fascinating as hell, a really a great piece, a widespread damage to brain and heart. Stop the mRNA vaccines and platforms. Did you see that one? I did. And, you know, I have a related a substack out, Courageous Discourse substack with John Leake. And and this has to do with the disturbing findings from autopsies. Uh, a German pathologist, Mortz, M-O-R-Z, published a case, and this is very important, Malcolm. It's a 76-year-old senior citizen with Parkinson's who appears to be living in independent living or with a family member. And uh, this poor soul takes uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, last summer and has a terrible reaction, has what they call cardiovascular symptoms, feels really sick, uh, recovers. And then a month later, they go ahead and give Pfizer. Uh, so the poor person gets Pfizer. And at that point in time, uh, has a big decline in cognitive function, um, psychiatrically changes, won't let the family members get near him, won't let family members touch them. 
He's completely withdrawn. He's completely changed. Um, <clears throat> he is uh, now in a wheelchair. He can't even walk. And the family is watching this all. Then in December, uh, inexplicably, he gets another Pfizer. They're trying to follow some type of booster schedule. Uh, he shortly afterwards collapses, recovers, and a week later collapses and dies. The family is, listen, the family's outraged. The family's outraged and they request an autopsy. And what they found was stunning. And we really, really have to push our listeners and our family members to, to get autopsies on their relatives. They need to take this step. What they found was a tremendous amount of brain damage. What they report is the encephalitis. Mortz found the spike protein in the brain. He found tremendous heart damage, myocarditis. It was occurring simultaneously. He looked for traces of the virus. It wasn't there. It wasn't like this person got COVID. It was vaccine-induced encephalitis, myocarditis, and it was fatal. Essentially, it was brain rot. I mean, this was awful. And what I am really worried about, Malcolm, is how many senior citizens have died in the last uh, couple of years since the vaccines have come out? And people say, well, they just declined with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, or they had a stroke and then they declined precipitously uh, you know, later on after the vaccine. And no one's actually looking at the vaccine that kicks off this terminal sequence towards death in our senior citizens. Yeah. Well, you said the key thing, everyone needs to demand number one autopsies. I pray that you and your loved ones out there are not in that position to begin with. But the problem is, which you stated very well, is people, uh, some people are incensed with following their the booster schedule or whatever it is, like it's some sort of an obligatory, uh, uh, you know, thing they have to do. And they're not paying attention to what we're talking about here. But no, the dangers and the risk here are very, very serious. And again, you know, you remember, in fact, I could rewind the tapes, Peter, but you remember, oh, year and a half, two years ago when we were in the thick of this thing and there was a lot of unknown still, but it was, you know, all starting to form shape. Remember, you and I had conversations about this and we said straight out, there's going to be a hell of a price to pay for this down the road. We don't know when, where, and how, but we know there's going to be a price to pay for this. And it's going to become very obvious that we've overstepped our bounds as, as human beings uh, in regards to all these vaccines and pushing this onto the public. And we said that early on. Do you remember that? I do. And, you know, this case brings up an important point. If people don't do well with these shots, we can't possibly continue those. There was a chance. There was a chance to actually stop this freight train and this poor senior citizen. He he may not have had much of a say in what was going on with his care, uh, but I my heart goes out to the millions of people in senior centers, whether they're independent living, um, uh, whether they're in assisted living, skilled nursing, memory care. This is a very vulnerable group of people out there. Many of our listeners, Malcolm, are in our age group, so they actually have their mother and father and aunts and uncles uh, at this stage in life. I am greatly concerned that the vaccine is accelerating death in the older individuals and wow. it's relatively concealed. concealed. Oh, help us get the word out, friends. This is so wrong. Uh, so moving it along here, this next one is from Tracy. Uh, can you ask Dr. McCullough, Malcolm, to discuss studies comparing the AFib risk from vax versus COVID? 
the doctor just told me that if you get AFib after vax, it's only for a few months and settles out. But if from COVID, it's longer uh, last than AFib, in other words. I was successfully uh, ablated years ago. Uh, he had COVID twice without issue, thankfully. I've avoided the vax, so can't speak to that. This man was still convinced the vax was necessary and that the bivalent bi bi vax is fully protective. Um, what do you say to this? Well, let's just take the bivalent vaccine. It has never been tested in humans. This person can have no idea if it's fully protective or not. It's never been tested. There are no human data. Wow. Uh, it did not work in animals. I would think it, it would have little or no protection in anyone. One of the first people to receive it was a nurse, the bivalent vaccine in Canada. She took the vaccine. She was in the pharmacy waiting afterwards, texting her daughter, and she keels over dead. She died right after the vaccine, Malcolm. And that case vignette points out the reality that someone can survive shots one, two, three, and four, and then take the booster and that be the fatal shot. Now, with respect to atrial fibrillation, <clears throat> I've seen this in my clinical practice, and I agree with the listener that the atrial fibrillation that occurs after the vaccine, and it does, tends to hit younger people who would have no, no reason or risk factors for AFib, and it tends to be longer and more persistent. Remember, AFib represents, uh, in a sense, a medical mess. People need blood thinners, they undergo cardioversion, drugs to control the rate, uh, it decreases exercise tolerance, really is a risk factor for stroke. I can't tell you how many young people are on edge now because their heart's in an abnormal rhythm, a small blood clot can form in the heart, and it can shoot to the brain. So we have young people take the vaccine in atrial fibrillation, now on cardiac drugs, blood thinners, having the heart shocked or even internal ablations, and it's all avoidable if they just said no to the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully they're listening. Um, Eric asks, uh, are there any steps or relevant medications to reduce adverse effects of remdesivir? My mother in law was given remdesivir about a month ago. Wow, just a month ago in the hospital um, because she tested positive for COVID. I can't believe they're still doing this, Peter. Wow. Upon entry for a different issue, she has since had to go back to the hospital three times for new problems. The most recent diagnosis is congestive heart failure. Note she is a diabetic that has had health problems, but since being tested with remdesivir, she has had trouble breathing, dizziness, and wow, we fear the worst now. She is back in the hospital. Any information would be greatly appreciated. I'm always listening, Eric says. Wow. Malcolm, this sounds absolutely horrible. November of 2020, the World Health Organization announced to the world, and they still stand behind this, that no one should receive remdesivir for the treatment of acute COVID. The World Health Organization says this. Yet the US uh, Health and Human Services and hospitals still continue to give it. To make matters worse, this case sounds like they didn't even have COVID. They came in from some other yeah. problem yeah. and she tested positive for COVID. We now know that someone who had COVID in the past months ago can intermittently test positive going forward. So we don't trust the positive test unless somebody's acutely sick with COVID. And, and now I think, honestly, we should have confirmatory testing, PCR and antigen testing, and the PCR needs to be at a cycle threshold less than 28. We really have, have to ascertain who has this syndrome. On top of that, on top of that, remdesivir was given. 
Here are the risks. In an elderly diabetic, there's likely underlying kidney disease. Mm -hmm. When there's underlying kidney disease to begin with, there's fewer functioning filtration units called nephrons. And so those nephrons are more vulnerable. This person gets, uh, let's say, a full five-day course of remdesivir. There's been enough toxicity and enough underlying risk that now this person could have sustained a significant reduction in kidney function from a vulnerable baseline. Now that reduced kidney function interacts with the heart. This is my research area before I went into COVID. And now this drives the development of heart failure, what's called a cardiorenal syndrome. This is a cardiorenal syndrome. Malcolm, we call it acute type two cardiorenal syndrome. This is a disaster. And I think the listener is right. It's all due to the use of remdesivir, which is banned by the World Health Organization. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Uh, Eric, uh, this is, um, we've been reporting on this remdesivir for a long time. Um, and nobody, I mean, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. I mean, um, they tried to give this to my wife when she was in there and we told them you will not, uh, when we went through that struggle in the hospital, but you, you've got to uh, really fight this stuff. And the fact that the hospitals are still giving it is really sick. I mean, really, really sick in itself. Malcolm, so, let me just get additional word on remdesivir because I want to be fair to the audience. So the World Health Organization does the largest randomized trial in acute COVID and they find no benefit. So there was no mortality benefit of giving remdesivir. Now now they follow up in May of 2022 with a synthesis of all the trials called the Solidarity Consortium. And they published it in May of 2022, just a few months ago, six months ago. And they conclude again, there is no clinical benefit for the acute administration of remdesivir. Now, that is in the context of multiple other papers describing some people can develop acute kidney injury and die via that mechanism. Uh, Many develop acute liver damage, and it really screws up their management, uh, but doesn't progress to fatal liver disease. And so the conclusion was here that in acute COVID, given in the hospital, remdesivir has no benefit. And then in cases like the one described, could, could cause harm, so it shouldn't be used. However, there is one positive clinical trial with remdesivir, and it was done, lead lead investigators, Robert Gottlieb, and he's a cardiologist at my hospital in Dallas. And uh, the one positive study with remdesivir is when it's given very early as an outpatient in a series of infusions. So if somebody came in high risk on day one, they went to a center, they got an infusion of remdesivir, they went home, they came back the next day and the next day, It actually did have a positive impact when given early, but one would conclude, well, geez, if that's the case, why not give hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or another drug early, give another antiviral and not take on all this travel back and forth to the hospital for remdesivir. But because of that one positive study, you know, I wanted to give a fair balanced comment and let people know is is that, you know, it's not every single drop of remdesivir is bad. It's it's in the context of giving it in the hospital to sick people. I think the outpatient use, which never took off, is simply impractical. It doesn't make any sense when we have oral drugs or we can give IV monoclonal antibodies, which are safe and effective. So as we sit here today, uh, the world would be better off if remdesivir, like the vaccines, was just removed from the market so it cannot cause any more harm. 
Yeah. You remember we had that dawn on, uh, remember some time ago, whose husband was a very successful, very well-known, loved doctor out in the West Coast, remember? You remember he died, remember that? Oh, that was Don Michael. Yeah. And you know, that's another case where he had diabetic kidney disease at yeah. baseline. He was actually improving from COVID. He was actually going to pull through from COVID because he got some early treatment and he dies a kidney failure death in the hospital. And she can't get to him in time because she herself is semi-conscious with COVID. What a dramatic story. Oh, by the way, that's out in California. That is where the class action lawsuit is for remdesivir and hospital protocol deaths um, that's ongoing. Lead attorney Watson Watkins is leading that. Everybody should look that up. I spoke at the press release out in Fresno on this. Uh, if there are Californians who want to join that suit, uh, look up uh, attorney Watkins and this class action lawsuit. Uh, remdesivir heavily factored into the harm that was done to individuals in those cases. Okay. All right. So listen, we are here at Q&A 42 and uh, a lot of the emphasis, you, you know, you're starting to see in a lot of these talks we're having, again, what are the two things? It's going to be consistent, long COVID and, and vaccine injuries. Uh, this to me is going to be the new pandemic here moving forward because we're talking tens of millions of people, the numbers are staggering. Uh, I mean, beyond that, uh, probably uh, everybody struggled with this, uh, the whole planet. So there's an awful lot of people suffering, friends. Now, one of the things you can do is take care of your health. And the way to do that is healthy cell. Uh, I want to bring that right out here now with you. Uh, it's funny because I had been taking healthy cell prior to COVID, uh, oh, about four and a half years, because I, I knew I kind of needed it. I pushed the envelope a little bit with my body and my, my schedule is what it is. And I know that I need something to uh, level myself off. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and I have to pay attention. I'll give you an example, Dr. McCullough. Last few days, I, I know I pushed it a little much and I could feel my body pushing back and telling me, chill, really, this is true. And you know what I did? I, I think you can relate to this. I took the REM sleep, REM sleep from um, a healthy cell, which is uh, micro gels. Uh, and I took that. I've done it for several nights now because I knew my body had to chill. I needed the proper sleep at night and in the mornings to make myself rest. And I got to tell you, it was really, really effective, which is something you kind of take it in the same way I do when you when it kind of hits when you hit the wall, huh? I do. But I have to tell you, so many people I know, Malcolm, have chronically poor sleep. They will tell wow. me that they wake up, they the next day they don't feel well rested. If that's any, any of our listeners who feel that way, I recommend the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement continuously every night. Uh, it takes probably a month, two months, three months to reset a healthy sleep cycle. The other thing about the Healthy Cell product line is the different products are very complementary. So the Immune Super Boost is something that many people need in this kind of vulnerable state right now, particularly post-COVID. Additionally, the brain fog is a big deal being post-COVID. I know when I had it the first time, I, I felt like I had just a little bit of this one time in the clinic. I think every post-COVID patient right now, in the absence of what we need are large clinical trials, which will take uh, many, many years uh, to consider the healthy cell product line, but use it in a complementary fashion, the immune super boost, the focus in memory and the REM sleep supplement, because they are all microgels. They work instantly. And uh, there's no signs of 
problems using multiple of these products in an integrated regimen. Yeah, no, no, they're very, very safe. Uh, so our listeners get 25% off the first order. There's the good news. Use the code out loud. Or when you go to americaoutloud.com on any post or right on the front page, even just a bit down, you'll see they're well-placed, the partnerships that we have here at America Out Loud. And it, when you click that, you'll go right into their site and you'll get the discount. It knows you're coming from the platform and you'll get it. Uh, and that's how you'll get that uh, discount there with Healthy Cell. Uh, I take it every day, friends. And by the way, that immune super boost, listen to this, you talk about being good for you. Vitamin C, vitamin D3, zinc, echinacea, extract elderberry extract uh it just it's it, it it just builds a strong resilient immune system that's the underlying point of all of this is is your immune system if your immune system's healthy and i've said this from the beginning uh, then you're going to be able to fight whatever comes your way with the challenges and let's face it the human body is precious uh it's a gift from god and we we need to understand that and cherish it always and we got to take care of ourselves so listen I, i'm all about working hard and pushing hard but i'm also about understanding when your body talks to you to listen to it and that's exactly what i had to do the last few days i'm just putting that out there because of my schedule which is upside down backwards and sometimes you just gotta chill and that's the way to do it. So anyways, those are micro gels, easy to take. They're in the little packages, take it and move. It go easy to travel with as well, by the way. I put mine in a little bit of water because I take other things with it to complement. I take NAC, I take extra uh, D, vitamin D. I, I, I take a series of things. Uh, and that's how I do it, friends. Um, anyways, healthycell.com forward slash out loud. Be sure you're using these kinds of products. The microgels, you get the 100% absorption into your body. You don't have to wait for the chalky pills or any of that stuff where you don't get the full absorption. That's the power of healthy cell right there, friends. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick pause here. We'll be right back with you here. You're listening to America Out Loud Pulse. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Make sure you go to our website and check the banner bars. The banner bars to the sponsors, when you click on them, automatically give you a discount on products. I like especially Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement for a great night's sleep. I took it last night. No wonder I feel so good today. Check out Healthy Cell and go to our website, Banner Bar, to get a discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer, 
This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Okay, welcome back here. Welcome back, welcome back. There used to be a name of a show that way, Welcome Back, Connor. This is Welcome Back to uh, Malcolm and Dr. Peter McCullough here. And we're on America Out Loud Pulse and uh, Q&A 42. And of course, we had that uh, blistering story up front uh, with the uh, gain of function and Boston University, the NIH. If you missed that, you're just tuning in, go back and listen to that. And uh, this is something you want to get a little bit loud about. Uh, so, a uh, pretty egregious story here, uh, to say the least. Uh, we're going to get right into the thick of questions. I want to get right into the high speed lane here with you all and see if we can get some of these done here. This one uh, is from Linda. Uh, she says, Dr. McCullough, I recently watched a video of Dr. Richard Fleming called 18 Pieces of Misinformation You Need to Know. One item he considers misinformation is the use of povidine iodine and nasal washers claiming they don't work and that povidine iodine should never be used internally. This was very unsettling to hear as I use it regularly. As a layperson just trying to stay healthy and protect myself, I want to understand why he would tell people not to use this when so many eminent doctors like yourself recommend it highly. He also claims that the nutraceuticals don't do anything. <laughs> Who is this guy? And you could have taken anything for three days and feel better. Isn't there evidence-based studies of these treatments working? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, anyway, she goes on to thank us all for the work. But what do you say to this? Do you are familiar with this, Dr. Richard Fleming? You know, there are doctors uh, out there, certainly, where they disagree with you know, accepted approaches, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, Frontline Critical Care Network, Truth for Health Organization, they all fully support the virucidal nasal washes and gargles. And it's based on 12 random, 12 supportive studies, three large randomized trials. And the important thing is topical use. Uh, for instance, iodine, uh, you know, we use, there are iodine eye drops, that people that ophthalmologists use, uh, we use iodine on the skin to take care of wounds before we suture them closed. So we're just talking about topical use. We're not talking about swallowing it. And I think that maybe where this doctor was uh, going, thinking people are going to swallow these and have some internal toxicity. Uh, that's not the case. We're very careful to say, listen, you know, sniff it back, spit it out, uh, gargle with it, spit it out. These are safe, Malcolm. Uh, the, okay. uh, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, US FDA, wouldn't allow these on the market if they weren't safe. Uh, and they are effective. And it's not just the povidone iodine. You know, there are data to support hydrogen peroxide, xylitol, uh, colloidal silver, and others. And so I think this is a big uh, part of prevention and treatment of COVID-19. It's, it's something people can do on their own. Uh, there's obviously dedicated products for this. And then the nutraceuticals and supplements, I would say generally they're supportive and probably not curative, but boy, the data, the data on vitamin D, for instance, one would be buried in the number of papers suggesting vitamin D supplementation, achieving a, uh, a good vitamin D level uh, and getting outside and getting fresh air and sunshine, converting vitamin D. It's so positive. 
on outcomes, it's impossible to ignore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I take 5,000 IUs every day. Sometimes I'll take 10 if I feel I need the kick in the ass uh, with vitamin D. I'll double that up. And uh, and then again, as you say, walking outside that sort of thing in the sun and the, the, our beautiful uh, planet is always uh, a resource uh, for rejuvenation of the immune system, for sure. That's why I preach all the time to listeners about it. It's a perfect way to stay healthy here. Uh, well, anyways, I thought I, uh, you know, it was a very tricky question, uh, but I thought it needed to be put out there. Again, don't make this stuff up, but thank you, Linda, for posing that. Dr. McCullough mentioned all the studies. There are plenty of backdrop studies here and back on the povidone iodine and the xylitol and the other things that you mentioned in here uh, that you can look up So and find those. But yes, uh, it's effective. And of course, the nutraceuticals, I mean, that's, come on, you've got to be silly not to think that that is not helping you out here. Um, all right. Uh, moving along, this next one's from Nancy. Uh, I am in the middle of uh, Omicron and had Delta in September. I mainly felt effects in the nervous system. Oh, last September, she said, right. I mainly felt effects in the nervous system, but also felt like I could not breathe despite good oxygen numbers. I had very little respiratory involvement. So what I'm wondering is if the primary mechanism of action for SARS-CoV-2 could be that it disrupts the brain-to-body communication and it sends a signal to the body that there is insufficient oxygen and when the body thinks that it does not have enough oxygen, all hell breaks loose and could explain many of the all-over-the-place symptoms we see. Coffin, even instead of being... Uh, because of respiratory illness is the body's response to try to get more air. Flu-like symptoms could be uh, because of lack of oxygen in the body. All of the dysregulation of heart rate, blood pressure, and temperature could be the body either being tricked into not enough oxygen or something actually removing oxygen from the body. Now, I'm not medically trained, but after going through the hell of these two variants, I was just wondering if Dr. McCullough could answer my questions. To me, this virus feels more like a brain nervous system poison. What do you say? What do you think, uh, to, about this, Dr. McCullough? That is a great question. I loved it. Thank you so much. That was so provocative. Couple data points here. Fillmore and colleagues published from the Veterans Administration, 45% of people hospitalized never had an oxygen saturation below 94%. They actually had normal oxygenation, but yet they were hospitalized. Why? Because they're panicking. Why wouldn't they panic? They have a potentially fatal disease. They've been sick for days. They're talking to the family member. And finally, they throw in the towel and they go to the hospital. They get tested and they get captured in the hospital. The hospitals are angling towards admitting people to get these reimbursements. So you're right. There is an anxiety component, no doubt about it. Anybody who's listening to COVID did think in their back of their mind, Malcolm, and yourself and your wife included, yeah. in the back of your mind, you said, uh-oh, this could be it. Yeah. This could be the, the last illness, right? It, it comes into the minds of people. Yeah. And I think there is a mind-body connection. There's no doubt about it. Um, there is uh, uh, a, a anxiety-driven uh, shortness of breath, a sense that you can't get enough air, even though the oxygenation is good. There are, by the way, multiple randomized trials showing a benefit for fluvoxamine, which is an anti-anxiety, antidepressive medicine, a serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, fluvoxamine or fluvox. And uh, people have said, well, maybe it has an anti-COVID ability or anti-inflammatory ability. I mean, I've used this drug. I think it works because it takes the edge off 
this this kind of mind-body connection in acute COVID. I use fluvoxamine in long COVID. And, and I would say this, that the shortness of breath, the bona fide shortness of breath and low oxygen levels that happen occur because of micro blood clots in the lungs. And believe it or not, it's very well tolerated, meaning it's different than a collapsed lung or a, uh, a what's called consolidative pneumonia, where when oxygen levels go down, you're literally going to go down the tubes. The low oxygen levels or hypoxemia and COVID are amazingly well tolerated. It's similar going to similar to going to altitude, to be honest with you. People go to altitude, they just don't keel over. I mean, you feel a little short of breath, but you're fine. And it's similar to that. I had interviewed on the McCullough Report, Jackie Stone. Jackie Stone was the most hunted woman in Zimbabwe. And she published a paper that we reviewed on uh, hypoxemia and how she treated it as an outpatient with ivermectin, a similar paper by Dr. Sabine Hazen, of which I'm a co-author, demonstrated that as well. So in those who have low oxygen levels at home, why is ivermectin so important? Uh, Jackie Stone describes what's called unhooking. Ivermectin is the only drug that actually blocks the spike protein. The spike protein is like a hook that's linking the red blood cells together and driving uh, the blood clotting elements, fibrin and, and other elements together to form these micro blood clots. Because ivermectin works at the level of the spike protein, it is basically resolving that problem acutely. That's what Hazen showed. And that's what Stone showed, two very provocative papers, uh, but an equally provocative question. Thank you so much. I do believe the listener is onto something uh, there is bona fide respiratory failure where people end up on the ventilator, Malcolm, that happens. And then there is a large number of people that have a combination of acute illness, anxiety rolling into one. What we want to encourage people to do is seek ambulatory outpatient treatment. And when it's really needed, like it was in the case of D, then use the hospital. That's exactly it. Wow. The memories came back pouring to me. I, I got to tell you, as you were talking... And of course, we were listening to Nancy's um, question and her iteration there of combining fear uh, with the attack on our systems and COVID. I mean, I, oh, my God, I could totally get this. I mean, it, I, it was like I was reliving some of those uh, moments again. Um, and when Dr. McCullough mentions D, he's speaking about my wife. And it, it, I, I never lose track of how blessed we are today that we got her through this. And it was thanks to the blessings of God and the early treatment and the people I had around me. And I'll tell you what, it was unbelievable. But I remember when she came back out of the hospital and she was inches from being put on a ventilator. And by the grace of God, we got her through on a heated high flow, uh, put 60 liters of oxygen all around her body. Her body responded to the grace of God and we were able to get through that. But we were so close she thought she was dying, but fear plays a big part of this. I remember when we came home just a couple of days later, she was having an attack at night against her heart. And I called you, Peter, remember at three in the morning and I hesitated, but said, I got to get an answer to this. I was so worried for her. The fear just overtakes you. And it was like it was attacking her system and her heart. And I said, what do we do? And anyways, it was quite a drama, wasn't it? You know, to get through yeah, it was. That. Malcolm, let me get in another data point. You know, our listeners always... Yeah. rely on me to source the data. A recent paper in JAMA by first author Grapsa from Greece, three major Greek centers, showed even today, even including the era of Omicron, those who get put on the ventilator with bona fide COVID, they're put on the ventilator, 62% mortality, even if fully vaccinated. 
62% mortality. Malcolm, the ventilator is not saving people. All the action is before the ventilator. In fact, the ventilator offers opportunities for misadventure. I've had patients with collapsed lungs. There is a ventilator lung injury because the air is being forced into the lungs. Uh, When the person goes on the ventilator, the secretions can't be controlled. So secretions can back roll into the lungs and cause a super infection of other bugs that are in the uh, tracheal bronchial tree. And I can tell you the mechanical ventilator needs to be avoided at all costs uh, it does. Amen. It's clear. COVID is not saving patients. No, you you you've got to avoid it, and uh, absolutely, hundred million percent. And you you've got to, uh, you know, stay clear of that. Listen, early treatment, early treatment, early treatment. Aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. Healthy immune system, healthy immune system. Push, 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 and avoid, <laughs> avoid, avoid. avoid. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell I got you going on this. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I I can I can speak to people from my heart. I know this stuff. I see what's happening here. I mean, we've been through this, and you know, we don't just talk about this, Peter. But we've been through we've been through the lowest points of life together, brother. I mean, we know this stuff. I mean, we see what's happening. We see the human response to it. The human response to all of this stuff. So that was that was a great lineup of thoughts and questions there uh, from Nancy. God bless you, Nancy. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Bess says, uh, my husband has had 24-hour migraines since his early 20s, provoked by alcohol, dehydration, or perfumes. When he gets sick, he gets them as well. And I've been very worried about the potential uh, damage that this could cause him. Have you seen aneurysms at the root of migraines? Others in the family has ha- have had aneurysms. So I would be worried uh, about should he be screened somehow? She says, what are the best tests if he should get one? He's 45 and unjabbed. Thank you, Dr. McCullough Malcolm, for your invaluable work. This is not really, I don't think your expertise, Dr. McCullough, but uh, what do you have any thoughts to uh, Bess on this? Yeah, remember, I can't give direct medical advice. Exactly. But let me say aneurysms can be a source of headaches, but not typically migraine headaches. So uh, if there's a family history of aneurysms, a family history of polycystic kidney disease, then yes, MR angiography, magnetic resonance MR angiography is the screening tool for intracranial aneurysms. Migraine headaches with triggers like alcohol or or, um, exercise perfumes, that sounds like more like standard migraines. It's so interesting that there is a developing source of literature for what we call extracranial sources of migraines. Believe it or not, the triggers for migraines may be outside the brain themselves hmm. and include the jaw mechanics, the teeth. Uh, there are various forms of injections that are given at the base of the skull with Botox and other uh, injections. Uh, the trigeminal nerve appears to play a critical role. That's a cranial nerve out of the uh, face and jaw. And there's drugs that are targeting uh, the trigeminal nerve. One of them is called um, Amovig. Uh, so I re- recommend seeing a migraine specialist. You know something interesting, Malcolm? The dentist that I see, he's a, a senior gentleman. He just published a, a manuscript on this, Dr. Neely in Dallas. Hmm. And he has developed an entire specialty of dentists uh, managing migraine headaches because wow. of this extracranial uh, source of people with migraine headaches are miserable. Yeah. And I think they should seek innovative solutions at migraine centers and then others. And, and, you know, the thing I really respect about him, he went to the effort of writing an entire 
book and publishing his data in monograph format. And that's the old way of doing wow. it. And this is what I've done through the course of my practice. And this is what I've found. Uh, so well, that's just one example in Dallas, Texas, but it's all over the country and the world. Yeah, look, well, our bodies are all connected, aren't they? You know, I mean, yeah. uh, got to look at all this. I'm going to squeeze one last quick one in here. This is from Lawrence. Uh, thank you both for the wealth of information that you've enlightened us with the course of the pandemic and the strength and resilience you have shown being contrary to the powerful narrative. God bless you, Lawrence. One topic which I'm not aware of being covered is about the efficacy and safety of the Sinopharm vaccine. Sinopharm vaccine, the original Chinese vaccine. This has been widely given outside of China in places like Dubai and Thailand, for example. But it's very hard to find any short, medium or long term safety data for it. This is particularly of interest as it's uh, one of the few traditional vaccines produced using the uh, deadly virus. Uh, so theoretically, shouldn't have the same dangers as the genetic spike producing, producing vaccines. Have you seen data on this, Dr. McCullough? Yes, I have. I mean, this is the killed virus vaccine. This was uh, the original idea tested in the papers by Mena, Cherry, and Barrick in the 2015 uh, publications in, in Nature Communications and Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In 2015, they had actually taken SARS-CoV-2, killed it, and used it as a vaccine in animals. You can go back to the 2015 papers. So when COVID-19 came out, the Chinese were ready to go on this. The Sinopharm CoronaVac vaccine was manufactured. It basically is the harvested SARS-CoV-2 vaccine killed and then given in, in an injection. And uh, so for those of you, by the way, who don't believe COVID-19 exists, there is a community out there thinking that the virus doesn't exist. Hmm. My question is, then how do the Chinese harvest it and make a make a vaccine out of it? You know, so the answer is, of course, the virus exists in yeah. standard viral cultures and extraction techniques the Chinese use. The point is, the vaccine in the published studies that exist on it is poorly effective. Every study I've seen is a vaccine efficacy in reality way less than 50 percent uh, uh it's it's down it's sometimes uh you know 20 percent or below it basically doesn't work what he's asking is does it offer less toxicity people can get sick with a Sinovac vaccine uh, but my read on the data is that it's less dangerous than these genetic vaccines which install the, ge the genetic code for the uncontrolled production of the spike protein. So I think it's safer, but it doesn't work. And we, in no way could we endorse a vaccine that uh, honestly should be off the market. I think they all should be off the market. I agree with the World Council for Health. And recently, Dr. Asim Malhotra, leading cardiologist in the UK, he's calling for all the vaccines to be pulled off the market. Okay, so that is a wrap from here, friends. Now, America Out Loud Pulse, uh, again, remember, it's every day, 5 and 10 p.m. Eastern Time. But, of course, you can hear this anywhere in the world on the iHeartRadio Network or our free apps, Apple, Android, Alexa, our media player. It's all back, all the contact points and touch points back at AmericaOutloud.com. Uh, we have great host all week long, okay? 5 and 10, America Out Loud Pulse. Uh, thank you for listening here. Always a beat ahead.